Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Episode 22 The Madams Are you ever too old to read pop-up books? I feel by the time you're eight or nine, you're expected to read stories with more words, more characters and less pictures. When you're an adult, all books are nothing but text. There are a few books in the antique shop, although no as many as you might expect. There's no area tucked away in a darkened corner where the smelly old bound books invites you to stay for too long, or where the marked and cracked spines a well-loved books beckons you to draw a finger gently across the grooves before you eventually slide one out of the row. There are books. They're just no on shelves. Like everything else, they're everywhere. Hidden in the drawer in one of the wardrobes, lying on a vanity where the perfume bottles should be, or lying hidden beneath silver thimbles and cards wound with antique lace. I liberated this book for the sewing supplies, drawing my eyes over the title. The Ruins Underneath. No author to be found. The cover was illustrated, a mixy watercolour and acrylic. Soft pastel backgrounds to bright, distinct foregrounds. It was a painting of somewhere that only existed in someone's imagination. Too fantastical to be real. A large waterfall framed one side of the picture. Soft, rose-coloured water running down. Whilst the rest was taken up with a sprawling city, dotted with lanterns, Roofs of multicoloured tiles and a forest that surrounded it all. There stood one person, a lone girl at the top of the waterfall, looking out at the view. Her face was mostly obscured, out of focus, but her long red hair shimmered in a breeze that I could almost feel on my face through the top of that waterfall. I retreated to my corner of the shop. The quiet corner where I always go if neither of my familiars is around. Kronos, as if predicting I'd find something to inspect, was already waiting, curled up on the set of drawers that I set on the floor beside. Gently, hearing the crackle of the pages as I separated them for the first time in a while, I opened to the first page. The shapes sprawled out like a bud blooming into a flower, until when it was fully open a grand scene was before me. A temple of some kind, similar to the ones for Rome and Greece. Except this one wasn't abandoned, and wasn't all white. If I were to ever imagine what those ancient temples looked like when they were used, the book reflected that. There were pillars painted with scenes, colourful people in colourful clothes riding on horse-like creatures, walking through garlands and cheering crowds, 
proclaiming something for their stationary mouths. Triumphant processions through streets, elaborate feasts weigh more dishes than people, epic battles fought over very little. It was ancient, yet it wasn't. It was Greek or Roman, yet it wasn't. I couldn't recognise any of these scenes, if they were alluding to myths or legends for these once great empires. In this temple were carved statues, also painted in similar colour, what I could only presume were deities or gods, the beings this temple was built to worship or praise. Each had their own alcove, and before each were different offerings. Toys, money, tools, rolsy silks, jewels and everything else a god may wish to be given by the mortals they control. Despite these objects, the care and attention given to the maintenance of the artwork on the pillars and the details on the statues, there wasn't a soul inside this temple. Save Fae One. A girl stands alone in sight, beneath the stone roof, winding in and out of the statues and alcoves, stopping at one to inspect, to consider an offering. I recognise her, mostly her ginger hair, as the same shade as the one on the cover, standing atop the waterfall and looking out. The strangest thing about this girl is that when I glance over the temple the first time, she's emerging from behind a pillar. The next time I glance to inspect a statue of a nameless goddess, she's standing in front of another. She moves, as if alive within this paper temple, this glossy marvel. As though she has her own curiosities her own desire to inspect and see this sacred place. As I flip over the page, I see the place that's on the cover, and the girl is on top of the waterfall again. I study the lanterns. The slate roofs are different shades of amber, purple and red, and when I look again, the girl is standing on the small bridge that crosses the river that circles the city. I never see her move, even over the rest of the pages, but she never stays in the place I see her first or second, as though she's a soul running over the pages as I turn them, beginning in the place I do and guiding me to spots of interest and wonder. A 2D tour guide. There's no words on these pages. No box filled with text leading through a story. It feels more like an art book where every page, every piece is abstract. None are the same place. They're all different. I never get to the end of this book. Something close catches my eye. A light twinkling deeper within the shop. There's no windows where I am, just more stuff, surrounding me on all sides. I look deeper into the pile, through the shelves, the one fur coat tossed over a coffee table, and past a few typewriter containers. And the light remains constant, 
like a pinprick in the dark or a star in the night sky. I put the book down and crawl over to where the light is, starting to move some of the clutter to get a closer look. There shouldn't be a light here, unless there's a hole in the wall somewhere and it's just daylight pouring through. I hear Kronos behind me, get up and jump down through the set of drawers, his tail running up my legs as he comes to inspect what I'm doing. The more items I move, the larger the light becomes, more like a full moon than a twinkling star. It gets larger the further we get to it, until it seems to suck us in. It's hard to explain this part, even for me. I was on the ground, sliding things out of the way so I could get a better look. I could feel the ground beneath my knees, hear them creaking and groaning as I moved, promising they'd have their revenge in the form of arthritis when I was older. And then the ground just wasn't there anymore. I've never gone skydiving or bungee jumping, or anything that involves flinging yourself out or affy things and hoping that whatever parachute or cord you have works. This is what I imagine it to be like, though. It only lasted for a second. It was white everywhere. No shadow, no anything. Just white. The ground had disappeared. Whatever I'd had in my hand was gone. The only thing I did see amongst the Dulux white was a flailing black-furred creature posed to land on its feet, if we did land at all. I couldn't have the wee shite dying on me, so I reached out and grabbed him, pulling him to my chest and bracing myself for a landing. There was none. The feeling a fallen faded, as though I jolted myself awake when I was trying to get to sleep. When I dared to open my eyes, I saw wilderness. Luscious, green and wild Scottish wilderness. I'm not familiar with every part of the Scottish countryside, but this felt different, even looked different. The mountains in the distance were larger. Snow covered their peaks. The trees were thicker and spanned everywhere I looked. Trees I didn't even recognise amongst the firs, pine and alder. Kronos was still in my arms, cradled as though he were a baby, and just by a glance I could tell he didn't hate it as much as he was going to pretend to later. I asked him if he was alright, and he jumped down nimbly with a flick of his black tail. The wee shite was fine. More importantly, so was I. But where the fuck were we? I looked to my companion. He stared back, and if he could shrug his shoulders, I'm sure he would Had we stumbled into a portal, a vortex of some kind that throws you across the universe, or in this case across the country? There wasn't another soul in sight. Only trees, streams and birds singing to each other. I had no sense of direction, no idea which way was north or south, and no idea where the nearest civilization was. 
Thankfully, I had my phone. Not so thankfully, up there in the middle of nowhere, I didn't have any signal. Strange how easily our phones become bloody useless. The only thing to do was walk. I mean, there must be someone in one direction if we walked for long enough. Kronos followed. You know you're in the shite when the talking semi-immortal cat lets you take the lead. We walked, past more trees, past vicious, untamed brambles which attempted to slice my arm and rip my clothes. Everything about this place was untamed. There were no perfectly lined bushes to separate the fields, no overturned patches of land where the tractors had been, or white dots on the hillside where the sheep have been left to roam and get lost. It was as though we'd been thrown into a pocket of untouched scenery, immune to the changes of time, climate change and technology. There wasn't even a sign for a public footpath, or any of those markers you get in beauty spots telling you which route you're on. Eventually we did come across sheep. Well, I think they were sheep, but they're no the ones you imagine, the ones that litter the countryside these days. These were a lot smaller than any I'd ever seen. All way dark faces, some way horns that I wouldn't get too close to if you paid me. Rather than a sea a white cotton dots with legs sticking out, these sheep had shorter wool, and only one or two were white, the most common being an off-brown, and some were even pure black. Kronos saw these animals, staring at us curiously, warily, and he stopped. It's impossible to tell what he's thinking, given cats, domestic cats at least, didn't usually have more than a few facial expressions. I know when we are, Kronos announced. Don't you mean where? I replied, hoping I'd misheard, but knowing better. I was right, Kronos didn't mean where. I'd never seen sheep like the ones in front of us before because they were extinct. Kronos couldn't place the exact time just for the animals staring at us. We had no choice but to carry on, hoping we, or let's no kid ourselves, Kronos, could pick up some more clues. I haven't walked that far in ever. My legs were aching by the time we came across some civilization, and that was being generous. My dad's really interested in history, more specifically Scottish history. He used to have a subscription to this magazine, which they didn't print anymore, that had loads of information on prehistoric Scotland. That's where I first saw the pictures of a Cranog, a type of wooden hut-like structure that's built on posts above water, usually a loch. There's only one way to get out of these buildings, across a timber causeway, a kind of bridge, also on posts above the water. The one that was in front of us now looked really similar to the one they recreated on Loch Tay. There was only one at the edge of this loch, 
and smoke was sneaking out of the doorway and through the thatched roof. I couldn't remember much about Cranogs, when they were built, when they were occupied, or even who'd occupied them. This place looked so old, so prehistoric, that I began to feel sick. I thought we'd been hurled back a few centuries, no, a few millennia. What were we supposed to do now? Were we even real? Was this like the time I'd been sent back to the madam's past when she was apprentice? Only the then Madam Norna could see me, but I was invisible to everyone else. I think I preferred mindless walking to the panic attack I could feel constrict my throat. It was Kronos's turn to lead, and dazedly I followed, thankful that he might have Mori an idea on what we were supposed to do. The causeway that joined the Cranog to the mainland was sturdily built, unlike what I'd imagined. It didn't sway beneath our feet or bounce up and down like a rope bridge. Inside the doorway was darkness, which didn't really dissipate as we entered. Inside was spacious, cavernous, with a high ceiling and low walls. Bracken was spread across the floor. There was a hearth in the middle dug into the floor and encircled with stones and pebbles. A fire burned and crackled between two women sitting on what I assumed to be wooden stools but were covered in animal hides. It smelled mainly a smoke, musky and strong, yet somehow comforting, as though in here was safe from the elements outside. It wasn't cold, despite an open door, but since there were no windows or chimney, the heat had few other places to go. The cow at the back of the Cranog would also have helped with warmth. Our arrival didn't disturb the woman. They continued with their conversation in a language that I couldn't understand. It wasn't English, and I only know basic Gaelic, and that wasn't it either. One woman, sitting on the right side of the hearth, looked worried, her hands twisting into themselves, her fingers pulling at the cuffs of her woollen kirtle. The woman sitting on the opposite side of the fire observed her guest, no her pal for the way she was sizing her up. The fire reflected something in her eyes, feral, almost predatory. That's Madame Minora. Kronos informed me. I'd seen Madame Honora, up close and personal the last time, and she looked nothing like either of the woman in the Cranach. I said as much. Not our Honora, the Honora, the original. That wave of nausea returned. It wasn't something I'd ever considered. Where did the liney madam stretch? One woman after another discarding her name to be the servant of fate. Kronos began to weave the tale of the first madam, the one sitting in her cranog at the edge of a loch, talking over the fiery what I assumed to be one of the first customers. Many millennia ago, when tools were not made of iron but bronze, 
and where pottery would be the only thing to remain long after its users were gone. Where hussies were built on lochs or under earth, and where people were buried with expensive items and trinkets to see them through death and into whatever was next. A woman was born into this world, in a small settlement in the middle of nowhere, in what would one day be Scotland. This woman was special. She could do things others couldn't, could tap into power no one could explain. She was gifted these abilities by fate. No one knows why. Us mere mortals never know fate's motivations or reasons. This woman became the first madam, although she'd take different names over the preceding millennia through language and culture shifts. But, like many who gain power too quickly, she began to abuse the gifts she was given, manipulating those who came to see her to ask for her help. Rather than keep a balance, help guide fate's hand, she wrought havoc with it instead. Fate realised what they'd done, understood the mistake they'd made, but they couldn't take the power back. It had been gifted to this woman at birth, and when the time came, for fate and time are independent beings, another would take her place. Something had to be done in the meantime. Fate couldn't wait and hope that her successor would be better. So, fate created another madam, but this time chose a woman whose nature and character were already formed. Someone who was born and raised just as everyone else, in a settlement dug into the ground to keep the howling winter winds at bay, who shared their hoose with a cow and a few sheep, who sat by the hearth on the longest nights and heard stories about long and distant myths and legends. Madame Honoras are born. Madame Norna's are made. Both balance each other out. One cannot defeat the other. They are two sides of the same coin. I didn't think I would have believed this story if Finn or even Reed had told me. I didn't appreciate before knew how far this all stretches back to when people were surviving in huts on the water and living with their livestock for warmth. How many women had there been? How many over the centuries, over the thousands of years, who'd taken the title a madam and forfeited their life, their loved ones, to live for a few centuries longer than normal, be the hand that guided other people's fates? I was just another tally mark on fate's board. By the time Kronos had finished his history lesson, Anora's guest was in tears, which I found unsurprising, and was leaving the Cranog with something I couldn't see gripped tight in her hand. I half wished I could say something to her, warn her that nothing was worth listening to Anora. But it was apparent that Kronos and I were invisible. Ghosts, no for the past, but the very distant future. Or perhaps this was all just an echo, a time and place that resonates through the centuries and the shop picks up like an antenna.
Regardless of what it was, I wanted out. Like the last time I'd been hurled back into history, I half expected the current, the original, Anora, to come sauntering over to us like a predator after prey and speak. This time was different. Just like her guest, she didn't see us at the door. I didn't have to fret long about how we were going to get back, though. Through the doorway behind me, a hand reached out and grabbed my arm. I felt a slight draught at first, as though there'd been some flailing before they found me, but when they did, they weren't gentle about it. I barely managed to get a hold of Kronos before I was pulled through the void between this time and mine. My landing back in the shop wasn't as pain-free, and my arse slammed straight onto the wooden floor so hard I knew I'd be feeling an echo of the pain for the next few days. Kronos jumped for my arms, no a fucking scratch on the wee shite. I'll let him fend for himself the next time. Finn had been the one to reach into the gaping white light in the wall and get us out. The madam, my madam, threw something, a stone of some kind, into the light, and then it began to shrink, the edges curling in on themselves until the hole was nothing bigger than a keyhole into an ancient time. Soon, even that disappeared. Over some common tea in the front room upstairs, my boss told me it was normal, for time to time, for the shop to reach into the past and hurl someone there. It had happened to her back in the day. I was nearly assured by this phenomenon. It was bad enough the cat and half of the things in the bloody shop had a mind of their own, let alone the shop itself. I could do without being thrown into a time before toilet paper and hot showers. At least I knew now. Didn't go into the light. Never go into the light. I never asked Madame Norna about what I'd seen, about the first madams. I couldn't imagine she had much to add to Kronos's story. The queasiness still simmers whenever I think back. All that time in the past, and how small I feel in comparison. There's nothing like a bit of history to ground you. But it beats hours in a car or on public transport across long distances. What the fuck is wrong with my mouth? Jesus Christ. They should be let out. <laughs> I still didn't know if I'm willing to do it. To do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> Shit. Besides. <coughs> Besides. And went to show him the dragon reed on the ring. What? Nope, that's wrong. <laughs> dragon reed? Oh, shit. <laughs> Only trees, streams and s- shit. <laughs> Not shit. Singing birds, but it's actually birds singing. I think I preferred mindless walking to the panic attack I could feel. <laughs> By the time Kronos had finished his... Finished? <laughs> nope, that's the wrong one. <laughs> Over some calmin calmin <laughs> calming tea. Oh, no, I don't pronounce that. I wasn't reassured by this phenomena. Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Do 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 do. 
Thank you for listening to The Antique Shop episode 22. Episode 23 will be released in two weeks' time. Hi guys, it's me again. I promise I'm trying not to make a habit of talking after episodes. But because the, because of the content of this episode, I thought I'd put a, a historical disclaimer in at the end. Uh, you don't have to listen if you don't want to. This is completely optional, just like it was last time. So yeah, this was meant to be a simple episode. I think my idea for this episode was literally just to, you know, tell you where the madams had come from, their origin story. But in <laughs> in typical me kind of fashion, I chose the one era of history that I, I don't know much about. So yeah, so here's another personal fact coming straight to your ears. I suppose I'm an amateur social historian. It's one of my other hobbies. I'm, I'm really into history, if you couldn't tell by now, um, which is why... Yeah, which is why I really enjoyed doing that episode back in last season. I think it was episode 14, 13 or 14, where we went back to the current madam's apprenticeship. Uh, So I really like doing historical episodes because obviously I'm really into history. But I, yeah, as I said, I had to choose the one era of history that I don't know much about. So I did end up falling through the rabbit hole of of prehistoric Scottish history, which obviously it wouldn't have been Scotland. It wouldn't have been called Scotland back then. And I even looked up the construction notes on the Cranog on at Loch Tay, just to be sure I wasn't putting anything in that wouldn't have been here. So yes, a Cranog, it, it is a real thing. Uh, mostly, I think it's in Scotland and Ireland. I think there's more in Ireland than there are here. So yeah, they found remains of a few Cranogs on Loch Tay, and um, I don't know who funded the project, but yeah, this like group of people or group of you know historians or whatever rebuilt it essentially using the the same like very similar or the same materials as our ancestors would have had access to to build these homes as well so yeah so it's a real thing a cranog is a real thing the the one on loch Tay is a real thing i recommend you looking it up and visiting if you're ever in that area of scotland which i confess i've i've never actually been to myself and i'm really eager to go when you know when things are a bit calmer Obviously, though, I did have to gloss over quite a few details, so don't take this story as completely historically accurate. I obviously I took a, quite a lot of creative license. Yeah, I took a lot of creative license with with it, as you kind of have to do. So the main inaccuracy that I had to add is that obviously Madame Honora she wouldn't have been living in a Cranog by herself. They're quite spacious, as I think a lot of households do tend to be from that kind of time period. And I know that the ones, the Cranogs that they found, um, and the one that they've created on Loch Tay, they think probably held about 20 people at one time, possibly a bit less. So this would be like a family, extended family, you know, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, you know, they all would have lived in this one building. So that's why they're they're quite big. Because I think from what I understand from this kind of time period, like prehistory, Bronze Age, like people were very <laughs> pack oriented. Like they, they lived in very, like they lived in communities and they protected the community. And, you know, they were very kind of, yeah, pack oriented. There's a word for it though. I can't remember what it is, but yeah, they lived in, in groups of people. You know, it was, it was, it was quite abnormal to have just you and like your spouse or your children in the house. You know, back then it was, you know, multi-family households. They they did live all together in this quite, you know, large house, what is essentially a house or a cranog. That was right about the animals. They they did used to live in the house with, you know, with the family at certain times of the year. Um, it's quite common, not just in Scotland, I think it's throughout the British Isles. 
where they would bring the livestock into the into the homestead or into the house or into the whatever just to keep them safe from obviously wild animals and also for warmth. On Loch Tay, I know they've recreated one, but they did find the remains of quite a few, I think maybe three or four, I can't remember now. I'm ashamed to say I've never actually been, <laughs> despite the fact I, I could have only lived about like a few hours from it when I was back living in Glasgow. But it is on my bucket list now, as I said earlier, to, to go there when you know, travel's safe. So they do have a YouTube channel. They have a website. And as I said, they do have construction notes that they've kept on how they actually recreated the Cranog, which I also looked into, which, yeah, historical accuracy is a burden that I will bear. So yeah, they, they've also got a YouTube channel where there's like short informative videos by the volunteers and the people that actually work at the centre. They work at the Cranog Centre in the Cranog and they essentially do very similar things that our ancestors back then would do. So there's textile weaving, there's, you know, not really weaponry, but like tool making and stuff. From what I understand from the website and from their videos and stuff. So they do have like reenactors there that are what I presume to be very knowledgeable about it. And then... Obviously, from there, you can fall down the the rabbit hole that I did into Scottish Bronze Age history. Yeah, I do love this podcast sometimes. I never know where it's going to take me next. What went from being a relatively simple idea to literally taking me hours of research just to get it right. <laughs> um, but we can all learn together. This isn't. This will not be the last time I do this. I can guarantee you this. I love making my job harder. So yes, we can all learn about Scottish history together. Yes, so thank you for listening and do go and check out the Cranog Centre on Loch Tay. Cranog is C-R-A-N-N-O-G for people (laughs) who want to Google it. Um, So yes, I would recommend going and checking that out and if you ever did fancy, if you are local, not obviously now, if you are within travelling distance or you're going to Scotland on holiday, then I would definitely recommend that area in general, I think. There's quite a lot of um, like older history in that area. But yes, the Cranog Centre. On Loch Tay. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.